If you're a BYG'er, uh, go bowling uh, immediately following the worship service. Uh, also, just a uh, thank you card uh, that says, we have lost someone very special. Thank you for sharing our grief. The throw was so beautiful. Thank you for being there for us all. And the prayers for our sweet mom, Mildred Gatlin, love James and Wanda Shedd. We love you, girl. Praise the Lord for what he's doing in your family's life. Well, see, that seemed like there was one other thing. Did I forget anything? Did I forget anybody? Amen. Well, we got a problem today. You know, when a preacher comes with two Bibles, he's got something on his heart. Amen. Uh, it's going to be a great, great blessing. Uh, first of all, I wanted to just tell you, if you didn't already know, uh, that the message you received from Brother Chad last week uh, must have been a barn burner. Uh, they left the outline here on the front seat, and so I got to snag that outline and, and find out some more details about what Chad preached on. And, uh, man, that was a take-it-to-the-house kind of preaching, amen? And so I'm thankful for Brother Chad that would be uh, so willing at sh such short notice uh, to be able to, to preach and to uh, preach faithfully the Word of God. So thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. and then I heard that, and then I felt about that small, right? He was delivering, delivering milk before the ice storm, comes busting in here. Were you still in uniform? Did you? <laughs> yeah, you were just wishing there was ice cream in there, didn't you? Amen. Wow, wow. Well, I don't have to tell you that one of the desires uh, that God has for humanity is that we may comprehend the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Can help me out, sister? There we go. Got it. I think we're in business. Good deal. Love simply isn't a Christian message. It's very good. Let's try that one more time. We're getting everybody included. Love simply isn't a Christian message. Love is the Christian message. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. Friend, every person that we influence ought to know that God insists on loving every individual on this planet, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. God's love, as we have learned, is uh, unprompted. It's unreasonable. God's love is unending. It's unlimited. It's unchanging. It's uncomplicated. Truly. God's love is unconditional. And God's word has shown us that before you were even born, God loved you and he knew your identity. He knew your complexity and he knew your individuality. We've also been reminded through the word of God that he loves you and he also knows your future. He knows your destiny. He knows all of the infinite possibilities that lie within you but he also knows your legacy friend i just want to tell you this morning that god's matchless love fills our life with eternal meaning that's why i can't get off of this subject of the love of god and so we're going to continue on this theme today 
But I want to begin this new series by telling you that many people uh, think that Christianity is no more than a list of silly rules that try to take the joy out of life. In fact, uh, CEO and founder of CNN and TBS, Ted Turner, he said this about the Ten Commandments, and I believe that he did a pretty good job of capturing America's sentiment about the Ten Commandments. He said the Ten Commandments were given for the sole purpose of taking all the fun out of life. That's really kind of how America feels these days. Certainly how he feels. There is just something in us that doesn't like rules. Amen? We're not naturally uh, born with this craving to have rules over our life. We're not born with this desire to have ourselves ruled. We don't like rules. Uh, Consider this. Uh, You're late for work. The accelerator is on the floor and a stop sign comes up, now that can be a real irritation. Think about it. There ain't no cars coming. What a silly rule that I have to stop even though there's no cars coming. But on the other hand, if I spot a car speeding through the intersection without stopping, then all of a sudden the rule looks just a little bit better. And I'm thankful that that rule is there because I realize that that stop sign is there for my protection. Amen? So the Ten Commandments are the stop signs in the intersections of life. They are the the things that are there for our protection. And the Ten Commandments were given by a God who loves us and desires His very best for us. The Ten Commandments, friend, are an expression of love. They're expressions of love from a father to his children. They are there for love. They are a tender, heartfelt message that provide us with parameters to live by so that we can feel the love of God, so that we can receive the blessings of God, so that we can receive the strength from God, so that we can have a future, so that we can have a hope. These are there for our benefit. And after Moses died, you may recall this, after Moses died, the Lord was preparing Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, I want you to hear what the Word of God says about the Word of God. In chapter 1, verse 7, uh, God tells Joshua, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all according to the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the left hand or to the right. Or they don't turn from the left to the right so that you may prosper wherever you go. So God gave this so that you may prosper wherever you go. Let me give you verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. Get this. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. So why did God give us this law? Why did he give us his word? Why did he give us the Ten Commandments? Friend, he wants us to be successful. 
He wants us to be prosperous in his eyes. And so he's given us instructions that lead us to success. And so he wants you to be successful. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said that the Ten Commandments are a gift of great kindness to us. They tell us the very wisest and happiest way to live life. They forbid us nothing that might injure us. And they withhold nothing from us that would be a real blessing. We ought to see the love of God in the gift of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 33, the Bible says so much. In verse 2, the Bible says that the Lord came from Sinai, top of the mountain, where he received uh, the, the law, where Moses received the law. And he said, from his right hand came a fiery law for them not against them not to hold them or oppress them to give this law for them and listen to what he says after that yes the lord loves his people so why was this law given why was this bible given for your success to show you to express the love of god for you Now, some people think that the coming of Jesus has somehow made the Ten Commandments obsolete. Well, I got news for you. That's not the case. In fact, uh, I've heard people say, you know what, Bill? We live in an age of grace. We live in the age of the cross. We don't have to listen to all that Old Testament stuff. We don't have to uh, bother with that baggage of the commandments and the divine law. But listen to what Jesus said. Because Jesus was clear that he honored the Ten Commandments. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. No, I did not come to destroy, but I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. So what does that say? It, doesn't, it says that Jesus doesn't represent a break with the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus is the perfect expression of the Old Testament. He came to express and to show us what the Ten Commandments were supposed to be lived like. Even wise old King Solomon, who spent all of his days examining how and what the meaning of life is. And when he got to the conclusion of his book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he provided a summary of all his accumulated wisdom. And here's what he said. Now here is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. Fear God and obey his commands for this is every man's duty. That being the case, for the next several weeks, we're going to take a fresh walk through these Ten Commandments. We're going to look at these ten God-given instructions and we're going to see how we can experience the love of God By obeying the Ten Commandments. We're going to see what they meant to Israel then. And we're going to see what they mean for us now. So I assure you that when we come to the conclusion of this series. You're going to see the love of God over and over and over again. You're going to see the words of a father. Who is eager to protect his children. So. When we do so, we're going to realize that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments atop Mount Sinai, he had indeed carved his love 
into stone. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 20, and let's look at the first commandment. The first commandment we're going to call the fundamental rule. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the Word of God says, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The fundamental rule. This first commandment is kind of like the hub of the wheel. And out from this hub come all the spokes of the other commandments. This first commandment isn't just another commandment. It is the one that brings them all together. This is where we must begin. And that is that there'll be no other gods except for the one true God. Verse 2 reminds us that God was reminding his children of his great love that he had already safely and securely brought them out of Egypt. But he also reminds them that he loved them so much that he freed them from slavery. That's an incredible love. So now Israel is standing at the crossroads. When they look back, they see all the pagan gods of the Egyptians. And when they look forward, they see all the pagan gods of the Canaanites. They're at a crossroad. You see, God's people have been and will continue to be caught up in a world of false gods. You live in a world of false gods. So what does God do about it? The one true God says, I want my people to know that I insist. I insist on an exclusive relationship with my kids. He will not share you with anyone. He will not share you with another false God. No others are like him. And we must not allow our spirits to wander after the, after the phony promises of some bogus God. Amen? God is saying this. If you're listening, say amen. God is saying this. Only if you have no other gods can you have me. So as you look on the mirror, in the mirror of your life, what kind of bogus gods do you find there? Only if there are no other gods can you have the one true God. Friend, there is no middle ground. There is a God. The Lord God will not be one option of many. God says it's either all or none. He will not share you with some other God. And that's true today. It's true today because idolatry is not an outdated sin. It's as prevalent today as it was back then. It's the same threat that it always has been and always will be. Of course, the gods have kind of changed their names a little, haven't they? Those false gods used to be called Baal and Asherah. 
Well, they've changed their name a little bit, and today they call themselves wealth. Today, those false gods call themselves power. They call themselves comfort. They call themselves desire. So what then is idolatry? Idolatry is whatever is controlling your heart if it isn't the one true God. Martin Luther wrote this. He says, that to which your heart clings, that to which you entrust yourself, really is your God. Sadly, many professing believers, many professing believers have allowed the other gods to clutter up their lives. But God doesn't seek just a primary place amongst many gods. He says, there will be no other gods, period. So as you look into the mirror of your life, what other gods do you find there? A half-forgotten god is no god at all. What other gods do you find in the mirror of your life? But I asked myself a question. I, I wondered why would God begin his list with such a narrow commandment? Man, I can't have any other gods in my life. Why would he begin with such a narrow frame of mind? And as I began to ponder that, uh, I learned quickly that he starts his list the same reason that that I married Janet. He starts his list this way because when I took a vow before God and you witnesses, I said that I'm going to commit myself to only one spouse. I mean, would you marry somebody who said, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, from this day forward until the next cute person catches my eye? As funny as that is, that's what we've done to God. There are more appealing gods in this world, and sadly many believers have devoted themselves to them. Would God permit that? No. He would not. He wants an exclusive relationship with you. It was love that caused God to limit the worship of his people to himself alone. There can be no others. Consider this. What if God just said, ah, worship any God you choose? Doesn't matter to me. Worship any God you choose. If he would have said, worship any God that you choose, that would have been the most unloving statement that God could have ever made. 
It would have been the most unloving statement he could have made to Israel. It would have been the most unloving statement he could have made to you. Therefore, he gives us a fundamental rule. And he says, there shall be no other gods before me. Now let's look at the second commandment. And we're going to call this second commandment the focus rule. The focus rule. And in Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, God instructed Moses to carve this into stone. Saying, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that it is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down for, to them nor serve them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands who, who love me and keep my commandments. That first commandment instructs us about whom we are to worship. This second commandment instructs us how we are to worship him. We must worship the right God and worship him in the right way. And interestingly enough, the right way involves hearing God. It doesn't involve seeing God. It involves hearing God. And I found that any true heart worship is intangible. You can't really touch it. True heart worship is, is very demanding. It demands your focus. It demands that you get quiet and that you listen up. That you don't just look to what you can see. But most people demand gods that they can touch. Most people demand gods that they can see. And even as Moses was receiving these commandments atop Mount Sinai, what were the people doing? The people were down in the valley melting their gold rings and they were creating an idol in the shape of a calf. And after they made that golden calf, they threw a party afterwards. And they began to celebrate and they pointed to that calf and they said, this is your God, O Israel. That's who brought you out of the bondage of Egypt. Is that a little bit crazy to y'all or is it just me? That's just, is that just stupid? That's pretty dumb. Amen? But that's exactly what they said. What a terrible moment in the history of God's nation. But the people just couldn't wait for Moses. And so they took a shortcut. But God tells us in the second commandment that nothing must be used to attract our eyes. Because anything that attracts our eyes distracts our soul. Pastor Jerry Vines explains why this commandment is so important. 
He says, an image of God is very limited. But the one true God is unlimited. He says, an image of God is very local. But the one true God is universal. He said, an image of God is very temporary. But the one true God is eternal. He said, the image of God is material. But the one true God is spiritual. And then he said, whenever you make an image, it distorts God. No image you can create, no image you can buy at Walmart, no image you can save your money for will be all that God is. That explains to me why God never tells us in his word what he looks like. Amen? We all have this grandfatherly picture in our minds of God sitting on the throne with the long gray beard. But we never know what God really looks like. We're never invited to stare at God. We're only invited to hear what he has to say. To listen to his words. To listen for his voice. God has revealed himself through words. And that's how you know the character of God. God is heard. But not seen. An idol on the other hand is seen, but never heard. In the Bible, Isaiah makes fun of people who create idols. And I want to share with you the sarcasm that the prophet Isaiah writes. And I want you to hear the foolishness of creating an idol in your life for God. In Isaiah 44 and verse 6, this is what the Lord says, I am the first and the last, there is no other God. Who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done. You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. How foolish are those who manufacture idols, these prized objects. They are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they're all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? An idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols can be disgraced along with the craftsmen who made them. Those who claim to make a God. Consider the blacksmith who stands at the forge to make his sharp tool. Pounding and shaping with all of his might. Consider the woodcarver who measures a block of wood and he draws a pattern on that wood. And he works with a chisel and a plane. And he carves it into a human figure. He gives it some human beauty. And he puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedar trees and selects cypress trees and 
he chooses the oak tree and he plants pine trees in the forest. And then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. And with that part, he warms himself and he bakes some bread. Yeah, it's true. He then takes the rest of it and he makes himself a god to worship. Wow. He makes an idol and he bows down in front of that idol he just made. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat. And the other part he uses to keep himself warm. He says, ah, that fire, it sure does feel good. Then he takes what's left and he makes a god, a carved idol. And he falls down in front of it and he worships that idol and he prays to that idol. And he says, rescue me, O idol. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their minds are shut. They cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why this is just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat. I used the other half to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, Is this idol I'm holding in my hand a lie? You may say, Bill, you're right. (laughs) That is the most foolish thing I have ever heard of. Somebody that would worship something made of metal. Somebody that would worship something made of wood. But what's your house made of? What's that pickup truck made of? We even worship ideas. We even worship hopes and dreams. We worship dreams of success and fame and fortune and power. And get this, we will do anything, anything necessary to fulfill those dreams. Oh man, if we would only worship God that way. We would do anything necessary to see him glorified. But notice that this second commandment comes with a warning. At the end of verse 5, we find, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Get this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Wait a minute here. Are you telling me that you're going to punish my kids for something the parents did? That sounds just a tad unfair to me. What about y'all? Well, you may think that, but you have to understand the real meaning of that. Because the real meaning is this. The children are not punished by God. The children are punished by the deeds of their parents. See, our failures... They leave a legacy. Alcoholic children 
often come from alcoholic parents. Materialistic parents often breed materialistic children. See, sin is very contagious within the family. So you have to be careful. So God says, the reason that I'm telling you this, the reason I'm telling you not to place another object, not to place another idea, not to place another dream, not to place another image before me, is because I don't want you waking up one day with a broken heart as you watch your loved ones making the same mistakes you made. Tripping over the same stones you tripped over. Struggling with the same faithless attitudes that you were afflicted with. The good news is, is we also leave positive legacies as well. In fact, approximately half of believers today will say that they are en route to heaven because of the testimony of loving parents. My final point this morning is about the second commandment, this focus rule. I noticed that it is birthed in God's perfect love. The Bible says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy is a word that is used by lovers. And God is the perfect lover of your soul. He created us to be in an exclusive relationship with Him because He knows that any other way is going to destroy you. He created you in this exclusive relationship with Him because He knows that the lives of those around you depend on that. He knows that your children's lives depend on that. He knows your grandchildren's lives depend on that. So he made this love relationship available. And he makes it available to every single human being on the face of this planet. It doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what you've done. And this word, this book, this Bible, this law of God even tells us how we go about becoming in this love relationship with God. In Acts chapter 4, after God had healed a crippled man through Peter, Peter says this. He says, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Get this. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Friend, if you are wanting into a love relationship with your creator, with your maker, it only comes through one name under heaven through which you must be saved. That is placing your faith in his son Jesus Christ in what he did on a cross like that, having been raised from that grave three days later. And the Bible says that when those things occur in your heart, when those things occur in your mind and you believe, then this love relationship with God can be yours. So during this decision song, if the Lord has impressed upon your heart how important this love relationship is, I want to just invite you to come forward. I'll show you not what Bill Barlow says. I'll show you what God says about how people can be saved through this name above all names. That love relationship can be yours. It's yours by just a step of faith. Let me pray for you.